Good morning. Good to see you. Praise the Lord. It's good to be here. We're going to be finishing up Ezekiel this week. I've entitled the morning's message, His Yoke is Easy. Let's pick it up and read where Paul read for us earlier our text, chapter 44, picking up verse 15. But the priests, the Levites, and the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court that they shall put on linen garments, so no wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within my house. They shall have on linen turbans on their heads, linen trousers on their bodies, They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. When they go out to the outer court, to the court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers, and put on other garments. In their holy garments they shall not sanctify the people. And um, with that much of the scriptures, our main point is going to be verse 18, but I want to come back to that. Now, if you were here Wednesday, I'll admit frustration in chapters 40 to 43, because from chapter 40 to 48, all of this deals with the 1,000-year millennial reign. And the first part of it has a lot to do with the temple and the unbelievable detail that's described in the scriptures. Um, And as I studied later in the day, I'd actually come across different diagrams, and I thought to myself, I just wish I would have had them on Wednesday. It would have helped the people have a clear understanding of the very technical measurements that are in the temple. I'm going to put a picture of the millennial temple up on screen right now. And uh, what you don't see, you'll see an outer court, an inner court. You'll see the temple itself. Um, But even around that, we read that there was a wall that was one mile square. So this would make it by uh, by far the largest of the tabernacles. Uh, When you search the Bible, the first one God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, it's called the the um, wilderness tabernacle. It traveled with them wherever they went. And um, it remained, oh, at Shiloh for over 300 years. And when David came to the throne, he just didn't feel it was right. He says, I live in this beautiful, gorgeous home. And the God of Israel dwells in the, behind this tabernacle, this wilderness tabernacle. It's not right. And he wanted to build a house for the Lord. Well, the prophet said, David, do what's in your heart. Go for it. And uh, as the prophet was going home, the Lord tapped him on his shoulders and said, I didn't say you could do that. Now you've got to go back and talk to David. Tell him he can't do it. He's got too much blood on his hands. But tell him this. Tell him I'm going to allow his son to build the temple. And more than that, tell David he can't build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for him. 
And part of our study this morning is going to tie into this, this building that we're looking at right here. So from there, Solomon's temple, what the book of Ezekiel is about, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all their life, 40 years of ministry, one message. God, because of your sins that were worse than the people who lived there before, I'm going to take you into captivity to Babylon. You're going to be there for 70 years, and then I'm going to allow you to come back. That's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar came down, and sure enough, Solomon's temple was destroyed. The unthinkable had happened. When the false prophets were saying, it'll never happen. God would never destroy his own tabernacle. Yet, that's exactly what took place. Seventy years later, when they were allowed to return to the land, only 50,000 came back. Um, Nehemiah started hearing stories that everybody's there, but everybody's bummed out. Nobody's doing anything. The wall isn't being built. The tabernacle's not being built. And so... The books of Nehemiah, Ezra, we talk about Zerubbabel. Um, They went to encourage the people to build another temple. And they did. But compared to Solomon's, it was nothing. And so when we come to the time of Jesus and King Herod, to impress the Jewish people, he greatly enlarged what we call Herod's temple. And Jesus makes reference to it In in a couple different ways. One of the ways he does is he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. And he says, you've got to be crazy. Herod's master craftsman builder. He's been working on it for 26 years, and you're going to rebuild it in in three days. But, of course, he was talking about his body being the temple. It was right over their heads. They They didn't get it. But then he goes on to say, because his own people did not receive him, And they didn't know the time when they should have known the time because of the book of Daniel. He says, because you didn't know the time of my coming, the temple's going to be destroyed again. Jerusalem, once again, is going to be surrounded. And the temple will be destroyed. There won't be one stone left upon another. Well, either it happened or it didn't. 38 years later, on 70 AD, Romans came down and they destroyed the temple. Um, there has not been a temple. The Jews have not been in the land for the last 2,000 years. And so that brings us to the next temple that is talked about in the book of Daniel. Jesus reaffirms it in Matthew 24 that there will be another temple. I have friends in Israel that have been working on this since I've been going since 1979, man. I first met uh, Rabbi Richmond, and they, their whole life is dedicated to the rebuilding of, the, of this temple. And they have the instruments, the garments, all that's set and ready to go. There will be another temple. I call it the tribulation temple, because in Daniel it says that the Antichrist is going to make an agreement with the Jewish people, but he's going to break his covenant, his peace treaty, halfway through a seven-year deal. In other words, after seven years, he breaks his promise. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, concerning the Antichrist, 
that he's going to go into the temple. The Antichrist, and he's going to show himself that he is God. So Daniel says there's going to be this coming temple. Um, Jesus mentioned it. Paul talks about it. Revelation 13, we have it. And so that temple will exist for seven years. It will be destroyed at the end of the bull judgments, as, along with everything else on planet Earth, before the Lord enters into what we're studying right now. And now we're coming to another temple. Now we're in the millennial reign. Who's allowed to go into this thousand-year reign? Well, when Jesus returns, according to Matthew 25, the first order of business is to separate the sheep from the goats. So everybody that goes into the kingdom that we've been praying for all our life, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. This is what we're talking about here, the kingdom. Well, everybody who enters in is saved. This temple will last for 1,000 years. Now, on Wednesday night from chapter 40 to 43, we went through the incredible details. And I thought, how can we make this easier so people can wrap their head around around this? And I found a chart. I'm going to put it up. not going to spend too much time on it. But here, it actually mentions the inner court, the outer court, where the temple where the temple is, and um, I think they're working on it in the back room there. There it is. Guys, this is, this is extra credit, easy to do, but we can get bogged down because the, the detail is so incredible. What this person in this chart, and there's many charts that you can Google and get, it just lays it out. It shows what is what and where it is, And you can Google this, and it'll show you the inner court, the outer court, the different chambers, the kitchens, the special room for the prince, the special room for the priests. It's all laid out in detail. So you can take that down now. And that brings us to chapter 44, which I wanted to do on Wednesday, but simply ran out of time. And so we're picking it up. And what we have now, we not only have the temple, But as we read chapter 44, we have what's called the duties of the priests. And I've highlighted our text this morning where we find them working. And um, uh, even though there is a temple on planet Earth for a thousand years, uh, it will be someplace that we can go to. It'll be someplace that we will visit, but it's not where we live. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. And the Lord says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you're going to be also. So where's the Lord? Well, Revelation chapter 21, 22, gives us detailed, pretty much detailed, a description of the New Jerusalem. It's 1,400 miles long, it's 1,400 miles wide, and it's 1,400 miles tall. It has 12 different layers to it has 12 different gates that you can enter into it. And my house is somewhere in there. But then it goes on to say, in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple, but the Lord God Almighty. And there's no sun and there's no moon. For the light that comes just from the Father and the Son is going to refract through these gems, because the different layers of the New Jerusalem are all precious stones. 
And the streets, we talk about the streets of of pure gold, but it says transparent gold. And so we're trying to put into words something that's beyond being able to describe in beauty because you have the Shekinah glory of God from the in going out, reflecting through all these precious stones. That's your home. No temple there. What we're studying here is on planet Earth. And um, it has a temple. And as we pick it up, I, I have several. We have three Bible studies, and we should be out of here by three, no problem at all. You know, Packers aren't playing. You don't have to worry about a thing. Badgers are through, so what, what do you get? Here we go. The, I'd like to look at it in three different parts this morning because there's things here that trip people up, stumble them. How, they say, how could there be sacrifices, sin sacrifices, during the millennium? So one of the things we'll, we'll look at is um, what's the worship like during, during this period of time? Why is there animal sacrifice for a thousand years? We'll address that. And the reason I picked this portion of scripture is how to project yourself as a Christian in work of ministry. And the reason I chose verse 18 is very, very important because the way they could do it They weren't allowed to wear anything that produced sweat. And so the message is going to be based a lot around Scripture, but more importantly, what I'd like you to see today is how we represent the Lord. Here's one of the perks of being in the second service. It's in the back of my head in the first service, but I know I'm a time restraint and I'm past my time. And the question is, does God really care how we represent him before people? And I would say absolutely yes. Let me give you an object lesson that kept Moses from going into the promised land. The people complained they were thirsty. And 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says that that rock that followed them around, that produced water, that rock was Christ. So when they were thirsty, the Lord says, well, go speak to this rock, Moses. Go, go take it and strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, it's going to bring forth water. And he goes over to the rock. And all of a sudden, we're talking almost 2 million people. We're satisfied. And this rock followed them around. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. And then, people being people, started complaining again, murmuring again. And Moses is getting ticked off. And he's headed up to here with these people. And he says, okay, Moses, this is what you do. I want you to go speak to the rock. Did you hear me? Not strike, but speak. Just speak speak to the rock and it'll bring forth the water. So Moses goes up on the rock and he takes his rod. And he says, must I strike this rock? And he came down and he hit it twice, struck it twice. And God being God, being gracious, water comes out abundantly. People are satisfied. And then the Lord goes, Moses, we're going to talk. What did I tell you to do? I told you to go over and speak to the rock. I did not tell you to hit it. I told you to speak to it. And he goes, so what's the big deal? Well, if Jesus is the rock, he only needs to be smitten once. Jesus was smitten once. He never has to be smitten again. 
Once smitten once, all you have to do is talk to him. And we're to come boldly before the throne of grace. Now here's my point. He says, Moses, you completely misrepresented me before the people. People think I'm mad at them because of your actions. You're representing me before the people, and now the people think that I'm mad at them and don't love them. And so does it matter how we project ourselves as Christians as far as the Lord is concerned? There's a lot of preachers out there that are trying to get you to be persuaded. Man, God, sign your number. And um, um, they, can, they can pour out the condemnation real, real easy. The fact of the matter is, now that the rock has been smitten, you don't have to worry about it. All you have to do is pray and talk to him. And he'll bring forth all the water that you need to be satisfied. So the first service didn't get that. Aren't you glad you came to the service too? <laughs> Why is there animal sacrifice in the work of the ministry? All right, let's go back. Let's just talk about the worship part of it. Let's go to chapter 43. Chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. When Solomon dedicated his temple, the one that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, the day it was completed, he prayed, and after the prayer, we have the Shekinah presence of God actually coming and dwelling in Solomon's temple. So much so, and so thick was the presence of God, that the priests couldn't do their work. They had to leave because of the God's glory was there. Because of Israel's sin, God was patient. He was patient. He sent his prophets, warned them. They wouldn't listen. Matter of fact, we read um, in the New Testament concerning the prophets, the Lord says, which of the prophets didn't you kill that I sent to you? And as a result... God's presence, we read, one day leaves Solomon's temple, goes through the eastern gate, goes up to the Mount of Olives, and then it's taken up and you never see God's presence again. Now, in the kingdom age, when you get to chapter 43, now for a thousand years, let's pick it up in verse 1, the return of God's glory. Afterwards, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were the visions which I saw by the river Jabbar, And I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate which faces towards the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. And the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, nor shall their kings or their harlotry or their carcass of their kings on their high places. Here God says, I'm returning and I'm staying here forever. The millennium means 1,000 years. 
In Revelation 21, it says after the thousand years, there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus said as much. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not this book. Ooh, think about that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not this book. And he says, I honor my word even above my own name. So here he talks about the importance of his name, but he says he honors this book, which will endure forever and ever and ever. And I go, wow. So what we have here, though, is a temple with God's Shekinah glory, but it's clear in Revelation that the throne, and not a sanctuary or temple, but the Lord himself and the Father are in the New Jerusalem. So who do we have um, in a position of leadership? And for that, go, go, please go back to chapter 34 because it clearly tells us that the Lord is going to have King David be a, um, a representative of the Lord during this time. Now think this through with me. We are involved on earth during this thousand years. We'll be starting Revelation on, on Wednesday evenings, and when we get, when we get to the pro- promises to the seven letters to the seven churches, here's one of the promises. He says, you are going to rule and reign with me on the earth. So that's what we know ahead of time. Something to look forward to. What will it be? What will it entail? Some sort of, I'm sure, administrative roles that the Lord has for us on planet Earth. And we read here in chapter 34, uh, verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he will feed them. My servant David, he will feed them and be their shepherd, and I, will, I the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Jesus is going to allow David to have this oversight. Now remember, go back to what he wanted to do. Nathan, go tell David he can't build me a house, but tell him I'm going to build him one. Oh. Yes, it has to do, he understood that his lineage would bring forth the Messiah. That's why Jesus is called the son of David. But it also goes farther than that with the implication that his rulership is going to be over feeding the the flock during the thousand-year period of time. Look at verse 14. What will he do? I will feed them in good pastures, and and their foals shall go up in the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pastures on the mountains. And I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I'm looking forward to meeting David. I mean, talk about a guy with the full package. He was a musician's musician. Saul said, I need somebody to comfort me when I'm going through my hard times. Who's the best? Oh, there's a kid in Bethlehem. His name is David. Nobody can play like him. So he was called. Uh, half of the Psalms, almost half, 70 plus, all written by David. So he's not only a musician, but he's a songwriter. And then he's a man's man because Saul has killed his thousands, but David his what? Tens of thousands. That was the reason he was, he was a warrior's warrior. 
And so what is he known for with all these attributes that he has? He's known for a man who's got a heart for God. And that's who the Lord wants as a representative. And he wants that message to be fed to the flock. And I think it's the greatest thing. King David is going to be king on planet Earth for a thousand years. And um, so now that that's established, I think the scriptures are very, very clear on this point. Also, there will be dramatic changes in the earth itself, according to the book of Romans, for the curse will be removed. And again, I didn't share this in the first service, but when they put that crown of thorns on Jesus, why did they do that? Well, they were mocking him as being a king. But why thorns? Thorns, when the curse came, he said, I cursed the ground. Now it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And Adam, you're going to have to work it. So what does that mean? Well, before God cursed it, there was no thorns or thistles. So what do we have being judged here? You have the curse literally being placed, literally, as a sign, being placed upon Jesus and being judged. No more thorns. No more thorns during, during, the, during the tribulation. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The earth is under a curse. Romans 8 says this, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage, or the curse of corruption, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only that, but we also, the first fruits of the Spirit, We ourselves groan with ourselves. The older I get, the more I groan. The more pains and aches I have. Currently, it's my shoulder. (laughs) So we groan, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. What a precious promise we have in 2 Corinthians 5. We know, I like Paul's certainty, we know that when this tent, this piece of meat here, comes to an end that we have another home, not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. Never have to sleep unless you want to. Never have to eat unless you want to. And the capacities, I believe, would be the same that Jesus had while he was here. He was walking in and out of walls. He was popping up here and popping up there. I think all those capacities will be the same in, in our resurrected bodies. It's great. It will be a time of God's holiness that will be manifested. The people that were called to be a light did just the opposite. They made their, the God of Israel that they were representing something that he was not, but not during the millennial reign. The book of Zechariah has 14 chapters. The last two verses tell us this about this period of time, the millennium. In that day, holiness to the Lord will be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holiness to the Lord of hosts, 
Everyone who sacrifices will come and take them and cook in them. And in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So what is going to be dominant is God is going to be glorified the way he should be. And his holiness will be preeminent. And it will be written everywhere. So the worship of him we read about when we get in Revelation chapter um, 4. It says that the four living cherubim that surround the throne, they don't rest day or night, but they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever they did that, the 24 elders would take their crowns and they would cast them before and they would fall and they would acknowledge the holiness and the greatness of God and his worship. You ever wonder why you were created? You ever wonder why you are? You were created to worship your creator. Good place for an amen. That's why you are. But more than that, it's a love story. This book, book of Ruth is all about that. A kinsman redeemer falling in love with a Gentile named Ruth. It's a love story. We're not just... Servants to serve with him. No, we're his bride. He's our husband. And as such, we have a different ranking. And um, so our our place during that time is going to be different. Let's go on to the second one. Why is there animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom? This really stumps and puzzles a lot of people because it's clear, the story I just told about Moses, the rock only needs to be hit once. That's it, not twice. Hebrews is very, very clear on this. Here, Paul, the apostle, had to explain to all these Jews why there's a new covenant and why from here on out we're going to do things differently. No more sacrifices. But we have one priest who's a high priest, and he's going to be a prophet and priest and king after the order of a guy named Melchizedek, who had no beginning, who had no end, he had no genealogy. So the question, therefore, arises, what in the world are we having sin offerings during the millennium? Let me draw your attention to chapter 43 and look at verse 25. Chapter 43, verse 25 says, Every day for seven days you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram for the flock has to be without blemish. Seven days they will make atonement for the altar and purify it, and so consecrate it. And when these days are over, it will be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord. So why is there animal sacrifice when Jesus clearly, and Hebrews clearly says, only one sacrifice, no more? Well, I'm going to quote, uh, I like this guy's name. His name is Dwight Pentecost. How's that for a, how's that for a great name or what? I got bummed out this week because I found out there was a J before the Dwight. So his real name is John Dwight Pentecost. I'm just going to forget the J part and just keep the Dwight part. I'm going to quote him because I think he nails it in this explanation. And um, he presents the problem uh, as he opens his couple paragraphs here and he says the main 
evidence of animal sacrifice is clearly given to us in the book of Ezekiel chapter 43, um, that this will exist during the millennial kingdom. And he goes on and we talks about the detail that we went through of the um, temple itself. Uh, but the primary objection made to the idea of animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom is that Christ has come and offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. And there is therefore no need to sacrifice animals for sin. However, it must be remembered that animal sacrifice never removed the sin that spiritually separated a person from the Lord in the first place. Hebrews makes it clear. For the law says it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never be the same sacrifice year by year which they offered continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is reminder of sin year by year. And then Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The Old Testament saints, when they died, didn't go to heaven. It says in Hebrews, they were waiting for the promise. And that's when the Lord himself, the Lamb of God, John pointed him out. He said, there he is, there's the Lamb of God right there who's gonna take away the sins of the world. Then and only then, were those Old Testament saints who had died in faith able to go to heaven because now Jesus, the, the true Lamb of God, the daily killing of the goats, the animals, illustration, you're a sinner. Now this really presents a problem for the Jews in Israel today. And again, I'm doing a little rabbit trail here. I hope I can find my way back. <laughs> but... Yom Kippur, the holiest day of their year. It's the one time that the high priest could go into that place called the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, once a year. And then he would make atonement first for himself, and then they would tie a rope around his leg just in case he didn't confess all of his sins and make things right. Because if he went in there and things weren't right, he would die. Who's going to go get him? Only the high priest could go in there pull them out. It's a true story. Read it. So, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. They don't have a temple today. Over 50% of the population in Israel wants the temple rebuilt. They want to reinstitute because they know full well without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So you ask a rabbi, what do we do on Yom Kippur? Well, you act contrite, you acknowledge in your heart that you've sinned against God. Yeah, but what about the shedding of blood? That's, that's why there has to be another temple, and they know it, and they know it all, and they know it all too well. So it is incorrect to think that animal sacrifice took away sin in the Old Testament. It is incorrect to think that it will do so in the millennial kingdom. Animal sacrifice served as an object lesson for the sinner. That sin was a horrible offense against God and that the result of the sin is death. 
Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Most premillennial scholars, we at Calvary Chapel are premillennial, agree that the purpose of the animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom is a memorial in nature. Just as the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the death of Christ to the church today, animal sacrifice will be a reminder during the millennial kingdom. To those born during the millennial kingdom, animal sacrifice will again be an object lesson. Most of Ezekiel are object lessons that the Lord has Ezekiel do. Here's just another one. During that future time, righteousness and holiness will prevail, but they'll still have earthly bodies. They'll still have a sin nature, and there will be a need to teach how offensive sin is to a holy and a righteous God. Animal sacrifice will serve that purpose, but in those sacrifices, there will be a reminder of sin year by year. So you have to be saved to enter into the millennium. But then for a thousand years, we have a population explosion. And every one of those children that are born are born with a free will, and they can choose to follow the Lord, or they can choose not. What blows my mind is after being in the perfect environment with the perfect ruler and having the curse removed, people say today, well, I am the way I am because you know, I grew up on the wrong side of town. If I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, everything would be fine. Oh, really? My Bible said the heart of man is, is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And there's none righteous, no, not one. So how is that going to finally be proven once and for all? Okay, perfect environment. Perfect leader. Perfect ruler. And then after a thousand years, when given a free choice, Satan is released from his prison. Why? To provide an alternative. See, now we're getting ready to go into eternity forever and ever and ever. Do you want to? Do you want me to live with you forever and ever and ever? Well, I'll give you an opportunity to make a choice. It's amazing how many choose to go with the devil. Well, the Lord makes short order of it, takes care of them, and now we enter eternity. Why is there animal sacrifice here? Object lesson. Sin is an offense to a holy God. And um, the sacrifice of an innocent animal will be made clear that without the shedding of the Savior's blood, there um, is a reason we believe that there's animal sacrifices. All right, that brings us to our text. And we'll spend the rest of our time this morning dealing, dealing with this. In verse 17 of chapter 44, Um, We've read that the sacrifices will be in place, but now more importantly, we find out how it's to be done. So in verse 17, the priests are told what they can and can't wear when they perform these sacrifices. And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner gate, they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall be upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court within the house. And they shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. Now I want you to think about that. As it pertains to the work of the ministry, 
but more importantly, how we project ourselves to other people who are watching us on what it's like to be a Christian. Here, we're told that when we serve the Lord, that's what these guys are doing, no sweat. You can't sweat. You can't wear the wool. And when we take that and apply it to us as believers today, this is absolutely um, so vital to me in the days that we live to correctly represent Jesus before people so that they actually want Jesus. But you can also project truth in a way that actually turns people off. But you can also do it in such a way that draws them in. So this morning what I'd like to do is the song that we sang is look at the Lord himself and how he not only taught, but how he witnessed. Matthew 11 says, take my yoke. What is a yoke? A yoke is something they put on an ox for the purpose of doing labor. And it would raise sweat for the ox, of course. He says, but take my yoke and learn from me. Because I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. See, my work is no sweat. It's easy. Come and learn. He says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden, the work itself, is light. And when I look at the scriptures and watch how the Lord did his ministry, he is the model to follow, not man's programs. And that's what we have in the church today at large. And I'll develop that thought a little bit. But we're clearly told in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus. So in other words, Jesus had a mindset of how he projected himself and how people observed him. What do we read? So the common people were glad to hear him. Wherever he went, multitudes came. What that must have been like, sitting down, and listening to Jesus. How did he project himself? How did he relate to people? Well, we have an example of his first Bible study that he gave in his own hometown of Nazareth, and that's in Luke chapter 4. So go, let's check it out and look at the model. Luke chapter 4. John has baptized him. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove upon him. For the next 40 days and nights, he was in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And after that was over with, he began his ministry, ministering in synagogues. And when we get to verse 16, he comes to his hometown. And he came to Nazareth, and when he had, when he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Let's just stop there for a second. Jesus had a custom. He had priorities. And one of those priorities was being in a synagogue on the Sabbath. I think we should follow that example. It says in Hebrews, don't neglect the fellowship of the saints. And then he says, and even do it more and more and more, as you see the day approaching. All right, simple question. Do you see the day of the Lord approaching more and more and more? What the Bible tells us to do? Keep, touch this world lightly. 
And don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. And do it more as you see the day approaching. This was his custom. This is what he did. We should have our priorities. We should be here worshiping the Lord on Sunday morning. Amen? We should be here studying the word of God from Genesis to Revelation every Sunday morning. Amen? And then we should have communion. And then we should have fellowship. And um, here's the model that, that comes out. But what interests me, if Jesus is going to teach, I ask the question, how did he do it? What was his style? So we read here, they handed him the book of Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So he actually is looking for a portion of scripture. Now, just imagine Jesus doing this. And the first thing that he says is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I wonder how the Lord spoke that. You know how I'm pretty sure he didn't say it? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. (laughs) Glory, brother. (laughs) Wipe off a little sweat here. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why do I do it? Because I just took you from a state of mind how Jesus would have spoken those words. And I completely put the attention on myself. And I got you away from the word of God, and I got it on me. And there are so many ministries out there that they're so easy to see through. And I think they're going to be held accountable for it the same way that Moses was. Mo, you you misrepresented me before people. I'm not angry with them. I love them. And you make sure that that comes through. You know, I'm fortunate. I don't know if I'd be in churches today if it wasn't for Calvary Chapel. And I mean that sincerely because when, when Judy and I are in Phoenix, they got all these Christian programs on there. And I look at these guys, and they're, they're either on take or they're putting on a show that's so over the top. I thought, why would anybody ever want to be a Christian? I certainly wouldn't. I was fortunate um, growing up, and we have what we call Chuckisms, and that's a saying that Chuck would say, and, and he actually lived it. One of them is where God guides, he provides. That's a Chuckism. Another one was this, and when it comes to teaching God's word, he says, simply teach the word simply. Don't make a big deal out of it. When Jesus, now we'll read it, with that in mind, allowing God's word just to speak for itself and keep out of the way as much as you can, preacher. And so we read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach the acceptable your of the Lord. And there's a period there, but when you go to Isaiah 61, there's a comma, not a period. And after it says, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of his vengeance. But he didn't say that. He stopped in the middle of a sentence and closed the book. Because that day is a great tribulation period, and that wasn't being fulfilled that day. Only this was being fulfilled that day. So what I want you to see, though, is it tells us how he did it in the next couple of verses. He closed the book. 
gave it back to the attendant, sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and began to, they began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they bore witness to him, and they marveled, now notice this, it should be underlined, at the gracious words. Well, now we were just told how he presented this, graciously. Which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this a carpenter's kid? But they were amazed that not only what he said, but he said it in such probably a gracious, well, that's what the Bible tells us. He was gracious. And that's the way he he presented himself. How about when it comes to witnessing? When we share the gospel with people, you can either turn them off or open them up. How did Jesus do it? Well, let's go to John chapter 5. John chapter 4. One of my favorite stories here is this gal... (coughs) at the woman at the well. Um, the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. If you're leaving the Galilee, they would actually follow the Jordan, what's called the Jordan River Valley. It would stop at Jericho, and then from Jericho you go up to Jerusalem. This, they did not want to go through Samaria ordinarily because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. And um, who was a Samaritan? Uh, When the ten tribes fell in 710 B.C., the Assyrians intermarried the Jews, and now you have Jewish babies and Assyrian babies, and they became Samaritans, and that's where the Samaritans came from. They weren't allowed to worship in Jerusalem, so they come up with a whole new religious system of worship on Mount Gerizim. That's where Noah's Ark landed. That's where Abraham offered Isaac. And that only infuriated the Jews even more. So the setting that I want to start here is there's um, um, bias between these two cultures, the ethnic groups. And, but the Lord says, we have to go through Samaria. And he had a divine appointment set up ahead of time with this woman. So they come in verse 6, it says that Jacob's well because he was weary. It's the sixth hour, so it's noon, heat of the day. And there was a woman of Samaria who came to draw water. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with this gal. And he says, give me a drink. And the woman said to him, look, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. What do you think you're doing talking to me? We don't like each other. And so Jesus continues the conversation Instead of walking away, he said, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, if you knew who was talking to you, give me a drink, well, you'd be asking me, and he would have given you living waters. Hmm. She's starting to think, who is this guy? He's talking to me, and he's a Jew, and he's saying that he could give me something that's living water. The woman said to him, sir, well, we just went from Jew to Sir, okay? You, you don't have anything to draw water with from the well. How are you going to get it? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus said to her, 
If you drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, he will never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. She believed him. There was something about the way Jesus was talking to her that she believed that there's water or she'd never have to thirst again. And she said, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to come here. And he said, okay, and just go call your husband first and have him come here. And she uh, hems and haws a little bit and says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, that's right. You've been married five times and you're living with a guy right now. So I guess you're telling me the truth that you're not married. And that blew her mind because nobody knew that. Nobody knew that, but just Jesus knew it. What's he doing here? Deep down inside of this woman, now it goes from Jew to sir to, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Now Jesus' status is really growing with this woman. And now he gets to the reason that Jesus is there. Here's a woman, heat of the day. You don't draw water to heat of the day. You do it at night or in the morning. At least you do in Haiti. It's too hot to do it during the day. You see, this woman had a reputation. This woman, I think, was deeply hurt. She tried every man she could. Didn't work out. Now she's trying it again, but this time just living together. And Jesus knew how desperate this woman was. And he seeks her out. And as he seeks her out, he begins to draw her out. And now, what's really deep down inside of this woman comes to the surface. Because what was deep down inside, being a Samaritan, she says, you Jews say that Jerusalem is supposed to be where we worship, but the Samaritans say I'm Mount Gerasim. I want to know, which is it? You tell me. That was deep down inside. What And how did he do it? Well, Proverbs 20, verse 5 says this. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Another way of saying it is this. You can read a person, you can become all things to all people, and you can open them up or you can close them up. What did Jesus do here? There was things deep down inside of this woman she wanted an answer to. And what did the Lord do? He brought him right to the surface. And he answered her question. His answer surprised her. Jesus says, neither. Neither? No. He says, the day is coming and now is when the Father will seek people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And now she's got the suspicion that She's talking to somebody very, very special here. And in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And then Jesus looks her right in the eye, and he said to her, I who speak to you am he. She got saved right there. She left her water pots. She goes back into the city And she starts to tell everybody she could see, come and meet a man who told me only things that God could know. Half the city comes out. 
A lot of people get saved. They go back and tell the woman, he's the Messiah. But not because you say so. We listen to ourselves. So my point in this, there's a proverb that says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. And I watch TV evangelists. And I watch the Three Rings Circus that Hillsong puts on and the performances that are there. And to a person who's really seeking like, and needs help like these people do, it's not going to happen because there's no real truth in it. It's a facade. You know, the facade is something you put out there that's not real. And that's all it is. And the most common of people can see through it. And then in the end, they sell their book. And they're just waiting for it to come. Jesus didn't have anything to sell. All he wanted to do was to set her free. And she's set free, and she's born again, and she's in, in the kingdom today. And so how did Jesus witness to people? Well, we're told when it comes to doing that, that we are to be wise. He says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, but be harmless as doves. Try to get them asking questions instead of going in with both barrels blazing, showing how much Bible you have knowledge. Jesus didn't do that. He said, I'm thirsty. He started a conversation. He maintained a friendship that opened her up instead of closed her up. And as I look at Christianity today, I see basically two different models that are out there. And I'll begin to close it up with that today. Basically today we have two different models on serving the Lord. And as we study the life of Jesus and his nature, one of our main scriptures um, that the Lord gave Chuck when, when we started Calvary Chapel is uh, Zechariah 4, 6, where it's, it's uh, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. No sweat. I'm going to do it. It's not going to be the work of man or his programs. It's not going to be power. It's not going to be might. It's not going to be a charismatic personality who's a motivational speaker that's going to do it. It's going to be my spirit. And unless it's my spirit, it might sound Christian, but it really won't be. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit versus what? Spirit-led versus purpose-driven. Yeah, that's a play on words. Warren Smith wrote a book on it called Deceived on Purpose. And um, when you leave the model that has been set up in the church, which I'm going to have you turn to, Acts chapter 2, let's go there quickly. This is nothing new. It's just the way it's supposed to have always been. The Bible's model for doing work of ministry is in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. 3,000 people just got saved. So how do you disciple 3,000 people? Well, in verse 42, it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's Bible study, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Four things. 
uh, Bible study, fellowship, communion, and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And all who believed had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, divided equally. They shared. They continued daily in one accord in the temple. Breaking bread from house to house, they ate with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When I read these four things, there's the model. Here's the biblical model. It's not new. It's the foundation stone of how the church was established around these four things. And whenever I read that, I look at that and I go, no sweat. I can do that. The long haul, from A to B, from the time I get saved, if I continue, just keep going through the Bible. Highlight of the week is men's prayer. We just finished the Gospel of John yesterday. Awesome. We have communion. We're incredibly blessed with people who love the Lord and know how to worship in spirit and in truth. And we could drag in a whole bunch of problems through that door when you come in on a Sunday morning and after the first worship song, you're wondering, what was I worried about anyway? And it just simply goes away. And my point with all this is it's doable and it's no sweat. And it's led by the Spirit. It's Spirit-led because the Lord is the one who's adding to the church. Versus the biggest megachurches in the country today are not spirit-led, but they're purpose-driven. And at, at the top of the pile is uh, Rick Warren. And he wrote a book called The Purpose-Driven Life. It sold over 30 million copies. His mentor, along with Bill Heibel, they will tell you that their mentor for success is a guy named Peter Drucker. Now, if you're in the business world, you know who that guy is. He's the guru among the CEOs in America today. And if you want to be successful in the business world, he can make you successful. Uh, he's not saved, but if you ask Rick Warren who his mentor was, he'll say Peter Drucker. If you ask Bill Hybels, he'll tell you the same thing. And guess what? They have megachurches that have influenced the culture in doing a different way of ministry that's different from what the Bible teaches. Just a list of things when he that are accomplished as a result of this. Rick Warren is cited as a father of the emergent church movement. When it comes to prophecy, in his book, Purpose Driven Life, on page 285, uh, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on their mission in the world. He said, in essence, the details of my return is none of your business. That's a direct quote. What is your business is the mission I've given you. Focus on that. If you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on fulfilling your mission. Sounds like dominionism to me. Not trying to figure out prophecy. Well, when I gave you Jesus' first Bible study, it was prophecy. It was the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That was from Isaiah 61. And he closed the book. He says, I just fulfilled prophecy today. You can't read the Bible without having prophecy. Rick Warren says, stay away from it. Too difficult to understand. 
He's a strong advocate of contemplative prayer and encourages pastors to use centering and breathing prayers. He signed on to a common world between us that seeks common ground between Muslims and Christian. Call it Chrislam. He gave the invocation at the presidential inauguration in 2008, praying to um, uh, Allah of the Quran along with Jesus. His new age proponent, Leonard Sweet, who calls himself an emergent church leader, trained many of Warren's church leaders and pastors at the 2008 Saddleback Conference. He uses probably the worst translation of the Bible out there often called the message. He supports the work of Tony Blair with his global spiritualization movement. Tony Blair, prime minister over in Europe. When he resigned, he converted to Roman Catholicism and he says, I dedicate the rest of my life for a one world religion realizing that the problem in the world today is religion, and unless we can get everybody under one umbrella, we're going to kill ourselves. It's logical. Well, Spock would say it's logical, but it's not true. And he signed on to that. He supports a Catholic come-home campaign. Well, the Bible says there's going to be a one-world religion, so that shouldn't shock us. So is there anybody of any significance since and importance in the world. Tony Blair's a pretty heavy name to be throwing around. So Rick Warren joins with him with that same purpose and cause. And uh, where the church is headed today is back to Rome. And the Bible clearly says that's where it'll end up. Uh, He gathered with the Pope at the Vatican, along with Russell Moore, Muslims and Mormons, to promote unity around family values. Uh, He is a creator of the controversial peace plan. As part of the peace plan, his top mission pastor was photographed teaching that Muslims don't have to convert to Christianity to be saved. He denies it, but there's photographic proof that shows otherwise. He also created the Daniel plan. Um, God's prescription for your health to get folks at Saddleback Church healthy uh, to create um, his alleged biblical plan, he got guys to come in like Dr. Oz, Dr. Mark Hyman, uh, a secular Jew and a New Ager, Dr. Daniel Amen, a professing Christian who dabbles in Eastern mysticism. A lot of works, a lot of activity, and a lot of sweat. All man-produced. And all lining up with exactly what the Bible says is going to happen in the last days. He's also Bill Hybel's mentor. Okay, let's close this thing up this morning by turning to the book of Ephesians and ask a simple question. So here's how it works. We're making our way through Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, we have the priest doing the work of ministry. And then the Lord tells, tells the priest... No sweat. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll give you a simple layout on how to do ministry. Be in Bible studies. Fellowship with one another. Have communion. Go to men's prayer. Very, very doable. No sweat. I can handle that easy. Not only can I handle it, 
I love it. And when it comes to studying God's word, just give me all you got. Feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. Just keep giving. And once you've been brought up with that gang, nothing, nothing can top it. Everything is second place because nothing satisfies the soul like God's word. That's a good place for an amen. Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from him. And so, in Ephesians 4, verse 10, it talks about Jesus going to heaven. He who descended is also the one who ascended above all things, and that he might fill all things. He told his disciples, unless I go to heaven, I won't be able to send the Holy Spirit back. And when the Spirit comes, he says, don't do anything. Guys, and he probably looked at Peter, he says, Peter, especially you. So what does Peter do? The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. And he's reading the scripture that says, hey, well, look, it says the one who betrays, we we need to pick another disciple. And so they picked a couple guys out and they threw lots and they picked one of them. That was Peter's idea. You never read about him again. And that was Peter's idea. Peter, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. So here he is not listening to the Lord, but when the Holy Spirit comes, what happens? He gets up and gives his first Bible study. 3,000 people get saved. That's not bad for your first Bible study. And um, the Holy Spirit now had come, and now the Holy Spirit's on Peter. Do you understand what I mean when I say spirit-led rather than purpose-driven? It's absolutely essential, unless the Lord builds the house, men will labor in vain. Oh yeah, you might have 48,000 people in Houston, Texas. And um, Joel Osteen with his beautiful smile and wavy hair. But every one of his books either has me, you, or I in the title, without exception. It's about you, not about Jesus. Biggest church in the country. But it's purpose-driven. What's his purpose? And people see through it. Anyway, getting back to the way it should be, he gave gifts, and this is how the ministry should work. Verse 12, uh, verse 11, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to people. You are one of a kind. Joel, there's only one Joel. There's not going to be two Joels ever in the history of the world. What does that make you to our Heavenly Father? Extremely precious and rare. Because you're one of a kind. And because you're one of a kind, he's set aside a special gift just for Joel. And um, the Bible tells us that we don't get to choose our gift. It's the spirit itself that decides who gets what. And so in no way should you ever feel condemned or convicted that you're not doing enough for the Lord. My Bible says wherever you were at when you got saved, stay in that place. Unless... The Lord calls you, and he has something else for you, like Peter and John. Separate Peter and John. I have something special for them to do. See, they were called. But my Bible says make your calling and election sure. Don't covet it and pretend that you have it when you really don't. But it takes the pressure off if the Lord, because you can just be yourself in the Lord. And so we read here that if we follow what was laid out in the early church, the model. 
Then we have um, some are apostles, prophets. I believe the Bible teaches that you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection to be an apostle. Um, all the rest of the gifts of the Spirit, I believe, are in full play and will continue, according to 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. All right, let's go back to the model. What are we doing? Having Bible studies on Sunday morning, having communion, fellowshipping, and we're praying. And we're going from a baby Christian on milk to the book of Revelation and Daniel and get into some pretty meaty stuff. And as a result, you're getting equipped so that you do the work of ministry. A lot of people think that the evangelists are the ones who are supposed to do the work of ministry. No, you're to come to a a fellowship where the word of God is taught simply. And then trust that the Holy Spirit is able to take those words, equip you, help you grow, so that when you go to work on Monday morning, you have your own sphere of influence with your own group of people that you might be the only witness, Christian witness, that they will ever see. Question is, what are they going to see? How are you going to represent them? You know, the Bible says that Jesus, did all he did is go around doing good. And if that's all you did your whole Christian life, that's pretty good. Because it's what Jesus did. He went around just doing good. And they were equipped. We're to do this until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children that are tossed to and fro, with carried about with every wind of doctrine, and by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness by which they lie to wait in deceit. But speak the truth, how? In love. And may grow up, and all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined knit together, by which every joint supplies according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Corinthians says the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The arm can't say to the eye, I don't have any need of you. No. Everybody, as the body together works together, is um, causing the growth that's there. And having said all that, it can be accomplished with no sweat. And my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And the Jesus style and the way that he interacted with people was one that opened them up and it didn't close them up. Enough said? No sweat? (laughs) Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through Ezekiel, uh, the symbolism that's there, Lord, that you you want us to represent you in such a way that when people actually look at us, they desire what we have instead of wanting to go the other direction. So, Lord, forgive us if we've misrepresented you in front of others. And um, Lord, help us be molded and shaped 
Help us be that piece of clay that you want to mold into shape into your own image. We give you permission this morning to do that. And in closing, Lord, I would pray for any that may be like the woman at the well, just thinking there's no way that I could be redeemed. I pray that person would know that the Lord is seeking you out right now and wanting to set you free and show you things that only he can do for you. Lord, touch that one this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.